Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a desk. Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. Hi, I'm Daniel Meeks out of Los Angeles, California. I'm Kim Howard. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Lights up on a bar in Hyde Ashbury, San Francisco, June 25th, 1967. Mama Nature is dancing with a joint in her hand. She wears a colorful caftan and has flowers in her hair. Papa enters behind her, wearing a plain tunic. He has a long, flowing beard. La, la, la. La, la. So they say. Oh my god, in person! Don't blow my cover. Solid. Take your threads. Perhaps I should have adopted a disguise. Don't sweat it, man. You'll blend right in with the hippies and stoners. Infernal copycats. Haven't seen you down here in ages. What brings you to hate Ashbury of all places? We have a crisis on our hands, Mama Nature. What have they done this time? Not worshipping golden dogies again. No, this is far more serious. Lay it on me. I assume you watch television tonight? Yeah, what a blast. The bad four were out of sight. Uh, on the contrary, they were viewed by an audience of 400 million. Unreal! And, and, and what's the message they're spreading? All you need is... Love, love, love. A euphemism to get past the network censors. Everyone knows what they're really advocating. Don't be such a square, Daddy-o. <laughs> I'm no prude. Be fruitful and multiply. That's what I always say. Then what's your hang-up? They can fornicate as much as they like, with my blessing, as long as they procreate. Don't flip your wig, man. Did you see what was on the cover of Time magazine a few weeks ago? You have... Uh, Him too. But I'm referring to the birth control pill. Far out. That's a gas for women. That's some freak. When combined with free love, it's a recipe for extinction. Hey, Luis, they're just having fun. They're ripping me off. The deal is, I give them multiple orgasms and they perpetuate the species. People are still reproducing. For how much longer? I'm not prepared to take the risk. I must intervene. Uh, no way, Jose. Don't you dare. They leave me no choice. It's time for a smitey. Are you out of your tree? You know, I've got a wrath management problem. I need to protect my investment. Creating humanity took eons. I didn't just dash it off in an afternoon. If the birth rate slows down a smidge, where's the harm? The planet's overpopulated. No, it isn't. Have you surveyed the Sahara lately? Or Antarctica? 
Those are hardly hospitable environments. Oh, they want hospitable now, do they? Spoiled brats. They're overdue for a plague. Mama offers the joint to Papa. Here. Have a hit. Oh, boils on their genitals, oozing pus. You already did that one in the Bible? Yes, an oldie but a goodie. If you re-release it, they'll just invent industrial strength condoms. How will that help your grand plan? Uh, I knew it was a mistake giving them brains. Come have a drink. I I will not be outwitted by my own creatures. Chill, man. It's the summer of love. Go with the flow. You want to try some LSD? Keep that stuff away from me. I, I need a clear head. You need an open mind. Psychedelic experiences are where it's at. I'm disappointed in you, Mama. I thought you were the spirit of the natural world. You can only get so high on me. All this experimenting with drugs, it's absolutely... Hold on. (laughs) Yes, two can play at that game. I'll spike their contraceptive pills with placebos. What? (laughs) We'll have mass pregnancies everywhere. Sounds way underhanded. Not your style. You're right. I can't be seen to be involved. It would reflect on my patriarchal gravitas. You'll have to do it. Me? The physical world is your realm. I'm happy to do floods, cyclones, or earthquakes. Tampering with pharmaceutical products. Not my scene, man. Need I remind you how this works? You are merely the expression of my will, and my will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a nightmare. Let's see. Who's in town for the Monterey Festival? Jimi Hendrix, Cass Elliot, Ravi Shankar, Janice Joplin. Oh, such possibilities. If, if only Mick Jagger was here. He was invited, but the establishment refused him a work visa. Drug charges. Uh, people could be so intolerant. Listen, man. You haven't thought this through. When all these women realize they're knocked up, they'll go ape. Backstreet abortions will have lines around the block. I'll declare human life sacred from the moment of conception. You're going to make a public announcement booming from the sky? Of course not. I have to maintain my aura of mystery. I'll work through my pastors as usual. You might hit some opposition there. Martin Luther King reaches Planned Parenthood. So do I. But my plan for parenthood is far more ambitious. It just might take a while to get the message across. And in the meantime, how many women are you condemning to death with dirty knitting needles? Aren't their lives sacred too? Fair point. I'd like to avoid any accidents. You said these women will take drastic measures once they realize they're expecting. What if they don't realize? There are certain physical changes that tell a woman she's pregnant. (laughs) I'm sure you have the skill to make it bleeding obvious she isn't. You want me to fake menstruation? All over the world. You agreed to do floods. I got a bad vibe about this. Lonely be for several months until it's too late for a termination. They'll see their belly swelling before then. They'll blame a failed diet. 
And when the baby starts kicking? Indigestion. So one day, they have their period as usual, and the next, they discover they're practically full-term. The new mothers will experience an epiphany. They'll believe they've been touched by the divine. They'll freak out all right. Oh, these miracle births will be a wake-up call for the whole planet. Turning everyone religious. It will be nice to be appreciated again. Don't be modest, they'll adore you. So they should. I can see it all now. A new generation will grow up knowing they're truly the children of God. They'll devote their lives to prayer and veneration. High time. They'll renounce the pleasures of the flesh and pledge a vow of chastity. (laughs) Hold on. All they need is you. They do need to keep breeding. Sex? Dollsville. Can't compete with the ecstasy of divine love. Spirituality's the ultimate trip, man. The highest of highs. Even so. Right on. It's starting already. What? A woman over there's been staring at you ever since you walked in. Obviously dazzled by your magnificence. She hasn't even glanced at her husband. Really? Oh, she's not the only one. There's a group over her. (laughs) Heavy. Every person in this bar has their eyes on you. I knew I should have gone for invisibility. Soon they'll all be joining convents and monasteries. Damnation. How did this happen? I'm afraid you've upset the natural balance of the universe. Normally, everyone remains blissfully deluded, imagining their partner is someone ultra-groovy. Even though statistically half of them must suffer from below-average grooviness. Ah, yes, that romantic love hoax of yours. I always thought that was beneath you. It worked, man. Kept the population booming, no contraceptive device stood a chance. So you showed up, with your irresistible charm. I appear to have underestimated myself. That's not like you. What if... what if I abandon my scheme and make a discreet exit? Well, without you manifesting yourself in all your glory, I suspect things will... Return to normal with a bit of mopping up. Would you mind? Not my area. Leave it to me. I'll catch you on your next visit. That might be a while. Best played safe. Papa exits. Mama heaves a sigh of relief. Then she speaks to the audience. (sighs) A burning experiment. Turn to your partner and gaze into their eyes. Bet you feel a high that'll totally blow your mind. Lights fade.
The Ensemble Theater Chattanooga and the Lights Up Podcast were one of 11 organizations across the Chattanooga Valley to receive grant funding through the Sustaining the Humanities Through the American Rescue Plan. As part of this podcast, for each episode, we would like to highlight one of the other organizations receiving a SHARP grant. Hello, 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 everyone. That's right. We're back. Season three lights up. It's Dana, joined by my favorite person ever and co-host, Miss Christy. Hi, Christy. Hello, Dana. Hello, everyone. And today we have a new-ish playwright to lights up, I will say. Uh, We are joined by Rex McGregor, who has supplied monologues for us in the past, but now we are thrilled and excited to include one of his 10-minute plays. Hi, Rex. Hi. I've, um, I specialize in 10-minute comedies. That's what I mainly write. Well, amazing. That We're so glad we got to finally use one this season. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, and I want to do a quick interjection and say a big happy birthday to Dana because today is her birthday. So thank you for being amazing, for being in this world. And I know... Our listeners appreciate you, and I appreciate you big time. So thank you for being born, and happy birthday. Thank you. We're starting Scorpio season off strong with the mama and the papa. (laughs) Perfect show to start it off. So (laughs) let's dive in. Um, And we should also mention one other fantastic, interesting tidbit is that Rex, you are joining us technically from the future because please let everyone know where you are joining us from. (laughs) I'm in Auckland, New Zealand. So that's quite a few hours ahead. And it's usually the next day from where you are. I've been doing a lot of Zooming over the last um, couple of years. So I've got used to living in different time zones. Yes, uh, it must affect your sleep. I know I was out in California this summer, uh, still working on East Coast time and for a while there I didn't know which way was up or what day of the week it is so I can't imagine being a cross-continental so thank you again for joining us all the way from a different time zone yeah just on time zones it's usually okay with me um zooming into the U.S. because um your evening when I'm having most of my zoom calls is usually around the afternoon the next day here but I do have trouble when I do like Paris France or the UK I have to get up very early And are you, we'll dive right in. This is a great way to start because we love talking about process. Are you an early bird? I happen to be a night owl kind of creative, but we've met playwrights who will get up very early and write. Are you uh, a morning person or a night owl? I tend to do more writing early in the morning, but I do a lot of what I call percolating. That's mulling things over in my head, like later on at night. Um, well, we just got to hear Kim and Daniel bring your, uh, the mama and the papa, your piece to life. And I, I loved listening to them and I I would love to hear a little bit Rex about, um, your experience getting to hear it without seeing it. Were you surprised by anything? What was that experience like? Um, I think the actors captured the characters beautifully. So this is one of those plays where the characters are quite clearly differentiated and that came across very strongly. And I've had the pleasure of um, 
hearing this play several times over the last um, couple of years on Zoom. And um, yeah, it was nice to hear another version. And you said you've heard it a couple times over the past few years. When exactly did you write The Mama and the Papa? Uh, I've, I've just got my iPad here, so I can just refer to that. So I actually wrote it back in 2015, oh, wow. and it got a um, staged read. No, it actually got a production in Louisville, Kentucky. And since then, I've had um, readings in New York, Maryland, New York again, Los Angeles, New York again, New York again and Paris, France, and in New Zealand. They've done it in New Zealand as well, on stage. So what inspired this particular piece? Well, I often do um, writing based on prompts set by theatres, and in this case they asked for plays about reproductive rights. And when I first saw the prompt, I thought, oh, my goodness, how can you write you know, a drama about such a fraught subject? So I thought I'd definitely take a comic slant. And um, I just decided to set it in the past where it might be less controversial and um, decided on the 60s and took it away from there. And and yet it works because um, we know that's kind of, I mean, this has been a topic that has, uh, Christy and I always love to discuss the plays before we come in and interview the playwright. And that was one thing that we talked about uh, was that this is something that has been in the news cycle, in the um, political cycle for many, many years and many, many decades. And that was not, you know, unheard of that it was back. And so you have these two characters who are from the beginning, right? And then it's almost going to the beginning of this uh, discussion as we know it in current times. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, And also that you had these archetypal characters and more slightly humorous for me personally, uh, it, it let the material be a little more digestible. It, it wasn't mm. a really heavy drama because when you're going to do a 10 minute play, how can you get into the nuance of reproductive rights in 10 pages? So um, we both thought that was really masterful on your part by, by taking these archetypes and taking this kind of slightly uh, lighthearted hypocrisy to let everybody kind of absorb those characters. So uh, bravo on that. Um, my question coming out of that is, how yeah. did you feel as a New Zealander um, dealing with reproductive rights as a topic? Because that's something that we perhaps egotistically think of a rather American topic. Um, and But you said this has been performed internationally as well. So I, I was just curious about... Um, how you felt? Did you do some research? Is that something that comes up? Yeah, so um, New Zealand is um, basically in the state now where abortion is pretty freely available mm. to um, you know on request virtually. Um, so we're finding it very interesting what's happening in your country at the moment. We were mm. really quite surprised at, at recent developments. And a lot of people have commented that this play has become more relevant over the last few years because that's one of the reasons why it's been getting so many readings recently because it's striking a nerve with people, the the whole issue. Whereas, um, you know, when I originally wrote it, it was sort of like a historical thing, something that was referring to, you know, issues that were in the past that had been sort of resolved. But now things have resurfaced and a lot of these issues don't actually go away. 
Yeah, I was quite shocked when you gave us the year that you wrote this play in, for sure. Yeah. Yes, and in fact, Gary just sent Dana and I a message and said that's why this show was chosen for this season. So that's that's really awesome to see that maybe an unintentional um, result of it is it's continuing relevancy. Uh, it's, it certainly is. I told Dana, one of the things that made me think of it, I don't know if you've heard of the show Keely and Do um, by Jane Martin, but it made me think of that in terms of getting you know, putting a viewpoint in a room and just watching and seeing what happens um, and how you respond to that as an audience member, you know, um, really gauging that audience response. How do I really feel about this? I enjoyed the lightheartedness of the 60s. I'm a rock and roll girl. And so, you know, talking about the Beatles and even the nod to the mamas and the papas, I just really, uh, that that fed my little rock and roll heart in a great way. Um, yeah. And, and related to that, um, one of the challenges for a writer dealing with sensitive issues is to make the play palatable. And um, one of the methods you use is comedy, and another one is timelessness. So you don't want to get too hung up in what is happening right now because it will change. And um, the situation at the moment is not how things will always be. So I always try to um, have a timeless quality to my plays so that they do have a life after the immediate circumstances under which they're written. Well, that seems to be working. And it's, it's also speaking to, if you look at big commercial theater, the amount of revivals that we're getting, because this story mm -hmm. from 10, 20, 50 years ago is suddenly relevant or can be viewed in a certain way. Um, we started this podcast during peak quarantine because COVID had shut everything down. And for the better half of the first season, and definitely ad nauseum last season, I spoke of this thing that I had developed, and, and I don't want to speak for Chrissy, but I think she had as well, that I called like COVID lens. And mm -hmm. I could read a play that had been written 20 years ago or 20 days ago, and I could not help but view it through this new lens that I had developed from going through and experiencing a intense quarantine and a worldwide pandemic. And so now, yes, you know, it's like experiencing the mama and the papa is, is like, I'm going to view that through the lens that I have of this political frame now. And who knows what that frame will be for audiences for this play in 10, 20, 50 years, you know? And, and mm. I think that that's one of the, beauties of theater and live performance that it's not something trapped in netflix or on a like dvd or whatever um it's malleable it's ever living and just to go off on a little tangent there you mentioned um the impact of the pandemic so i just thought i'd give you my experience of the last couple of years um so new zealand um did a very heavy, strong lockdown early on in the um, pandemic. And as a result of that, um, the number of deaths per population was um, very low compared with other places in the world. And um, we have just only recently opened up completely. In fact, it was only within the last week that we have removed all mandates. I mean, until last week, we were expected to still wear masks in supermarkets and libraries, for example. Mm -hmm. 
and on public transport. And it's only, as I say, last week that that actually stopped. A lot of people had um, expressed the feeling that they were over it by then, so it was time. But um, we have quite a high vaccination rate now, so hopefully things will get back to normal. But the impact on, on me, for example, has been in some ways good for my writing. Um, before the pandemic, I was lucky to get a production or two a month or you know, even a reading or two a month. But um, since Zoom took off, I've been having regular readings every week. I mean, this week I've got three readings. Last week I think I had four. So every week I've got several um, readings of my works. Just yesterday, for example, I did a first rehearsal for a musical on Zoom. And we've discovered, you know, there are hitches on doing a musical on Zoom because of the time lag. But we're having a lot of fun with it. And it's, uh, yeah, it's great to um, experiment. So if you would be willing, uh, go ahead and share with us and our listeners how you got started as a playwright and um, how long you've been playwriting. Sure. Um, I first started writing when I was at university. I was studying French and German literature, and that included a lot of um, dramatic works. And that got me um, writing for the theatre. And I also did some stage acting there. I I, um, was mainly for the French club. So I played a a French um, comic role where I had to beat up um, somebody who was stealing my tarts in a medieval farce. And the following year, I got another violent role. I was um, one of the conspirators who was assassinating the Emperor Caligula in Camus' play, Caligula. So I've had quite a violent start to my brief acting career there. But I was exposed to a lot of um, absurdist theatre and um, some progressive theatre, but I'm really quite traditional in my form of theatre in some ways, but my subject matter is all over the place. I um, I do um, historical works, I do science fiction, I've just done a horror. So after um, university, I um, continued writing plays, often um, full lengths, which were hard to get produced, and I was really struggling. And then I... Um, was at a festival called Short and Sweet here in Auckland, which it's an international festival where they um, invite writers to present 10-minute plays. And I thought, oh, I could do that. So I um, wrote a few, and at one of those evenings, a woman I knew who was a writer mentioned that they were starting up a, a collective where they would um, get readings done for some 10-minute plays. And I joined that group. It was the Auckland Playwrights Collective. And we managed to get um, funding from a local council to um, pay some actors to do um, regular readings every month. And um, as a result of that, I started writing more and more um, short comedies and um, started submitting them to um, opportunities overseas. And uh, I was really thrilled when I got my first um, production in Chicago, I think it was, and then I got several in New York and I've had several in London now. So I'm getting more international. I've had um, productions even in India. That's amazing. <laughs> That's like, what a journey. Um, I have many questions, but I'll 
keep myself to one from that sure. story. What uh, draws you? It sounds like the, you've experimented, as you just said, um, both with genre and form and length, but it seems like you, I don't want to say put words in your mouth. I don't want to say favorite, but it seems like you're drawn to 10 minute short form one act plays. Um, what about that? do you find most interesting? What anchors you to that kind of length? Okay, so there's several elements to that. First of all, there are more opportunities for that type of play to be produced. There are a lot of festivals, particularly in your country, not so much here nowadays. It's, I mean, we don't do short and sweet here nowadays, but um, there are a lot of um, opportunities in the US for um, short play festivals. So that's just an opportunist reason. Um, another reason is um, my writing is very um, packed, very concise, um, very concentrated. One of the things I like to have as a test for my scripts is at the top of every page, something has to have changed from what was at the top of the previous page. So I want to have always a forward momentum. So as a result of this, a lot of things happen in my plays, like even in The Mummer and the Papa, there's lots of shifts and twists. And um, if you miss like a page, you can't just say, oh, we'll cut out that page because it's all part of the whole process. So, I mean, when you write a full length and nobody produces it, it's heartbreaking. But if, if um, you send out a 10-minute script, I'm sending these out all the time. I'm submitting all the time. And as with most playwrights, you get more rejections than successes. But it doesn't matter because, you know, the way the way I used to phrase it, the 677th rejection hurts a lot less than 676th. So, um, so as I was saying, I often write um, to prompts. Um, for example, just over this weekend, I had I was part of a 48-hour um, challenge from a theatre in Seattle, and I was assigned two actors, and I was assigned. Um, some prompts. So my prompts were that it had to be about movies and the genre was monster movie. So within 48 hours, I had to write that play. And um, one of the challenges there was me just deciding, oh my God, which monsters? So I spent half, probably half the time allocated to me just, you know, narrowing down which monsters, you know, which ones aren't copyrighted. Now I, I would have loved to do Ursula from The Little Mermaid, and I had a brilliant title, um, Poor Unfortunate Ursula. But that phrase had been used in The Little Mermaid too, and Disney, you know, doesn't like you using their characters. So unfortunately, I had to drop Ursula. I ended up with two other monsters, one a vampire, one a gorgon. I, I chose two female monsters too because I was assigned two female actors, so I wrote it specifically. So that's one way I write plays, two prompts like that. But sometimes I just get an idea in my head and I, I'll write something for me. So um, a few years ago, I wrote a play about um, Napoleon Bonaparte confronting Queen Louise of Prussia. Um, she was trying to defend her country. You know, he was trying to slice it up and destroy it, basically. So um, Queen Louise is a national heroine in, in Germany now because she um, tried to defend herself against the invader. So this is like a, a battle of wits between two characters. But because it's a historical play, it's about 30 minutes. Um, 
I really just wrote it for myself. I mean, I submitted it to a few places, you know, just on the off chance and thought, you know, maybe to, maybe somebody will pick it up. And I was lucky um, over Zoom, I've had a couple of readings, including one in, in France with a couple of um, um, actors um, close to the nationality. I had a, a Frenchman reading Napoleon, who was great. And I had a woman with a German background who was reading um, Queen Louise. And both those readings were really, really fun and, and everybody enjoyed them. But I thought, oh, it's a real challenge. You'll never actually get it on stage, Rex. But then a few months ago, I got a response from a, a theatre in Australia, of all places. Not some, not the country you think of as the most, most cultured place, but a director there really liked the play. And um, it was fully produced with wonderful costumes um, just a few weeks ago. And I've... There's a wonderful um, photo on my website, for example, if you can see what it looks like. And it's it was just so pleasing. I actually saw the video of it to um, see that play on stage because I know I was thinking, getting to the stage where, oh, well, maybe you'll never actually get to see it on stage. So I'm beginning to think that maybe for a lot of my works that haven't had full productions yet, their time may come. You just need to find the right director. And the actors love doing this too. So so how quickly were you able to find comedy as kind of your, or short comedy in particular, as your sort of vein that you prefer? And do you have any playwrights that have influenced how you write? Okay, so when I was saying back in my um, early university days, I was, um, you know, studying theatre. I mean, there was a bit of Moliere, but a lot of it was um, fairly... Um, um, absurdist, like Beckett, that type of play. Um, and I started out writing in that vein. So although there were comic elements, there was always some sort of intellectual, um, serious motivation behind it. And then I started writing um, some full-length plays, and I wrote one play that I was very, you know, I was quite young and very earnest, and there was a one of the um, national... Uh, playwriting workshops where they had a lot of um, important people at a at a group of play readings and one of my full lengths was read there and it was about um, deprogramming I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term it means when you try to um, uh, curb the beliefs of someone who's in a cult okay so there was one scene I had where um, the cult member was um, confronting the deprogrammer and it was a very serious moment. And I had um, this really um, intense, dramatic moment, but the audience laughed. And I was quite shocked in, in those days as, as a young um, enthusiast. Why are they laughing? This is a serious moment. But shortly afterwards, you know, it became clear that I had set up the scene in such a way that the payback would be that the audience would laugh. Shortly after that, I started, you know, exploring this more and, and writing more comedies. And um, the dramaturg even on that said, you know, you've got a real talent for this sort of thing. And a lot of my um, works are quite, um, have quite intriguing plots where there's lots of twists and turns. So you don't get that so much in serious drama, but in comedy, you know, plot twists and, and, and um, reverses are, are quite common. So what was your second um, question there, Christy? Um, there was a second one. Do you have any playwrights that have influenced? Oh, yes, yes. So um, 
I'm not sure if you're familiar with the English playwright Ellen Aikbourne or oh. Tom Stoppard. So both of those um, writers had a lot of influence on me early on. There, um, for Aikbourne, it's it's his inventiveness and um, willing to experiment theatrically. And with Stoppard, it's his um, verbal finesse. I was actually going to ask about um, Stoppard because Aikbourne totally makes sense to me. And um, the, some of the French playwrights, if that's where you came up. But, mm. but um, Stoppard was not totally nonsensical, but interesting because he's so known for writing these epic, sweeping, you know, mm. you know, Leopoldstadt has, is going to about to open on Broadway and is about to have one of the biggest casts on Broadway. Um, I did rock and roll where, you know, in act yeah. one is set in this time period. Then act two, you're playing your own daughter because it's 20 years in the future. Um, he does just these huge epic plays and you are over here and you're like, I love it concise. I'm going to kill my darlings. I'm going to get it down um, to, you know, five, 10 minutes. So because we focus on playwrights and we really want to serve that, can you talk a little bit about how, the inspiration from someone who writes in such an epic sweeping fashion influences your work? Is it just simply the wordplay or is there something I, more there? I think it's the language and I think it's the um, way he goes off on tangents. Mm. And um, what I, w I will often do that and go off on tangents when I'm writing, but it's, a way to get into the characters' heads and to understand what their really what their motivations are. So Stoppard uses language, but it's always in the service of character. And I really think um, that's what I'm really trying to do. I, I define um, plots as um, characters in action. So I really like to um, explore the whole realm of humanity and um both Stoppard and um Aikborn are, are playwrights that are always looking out and and they're always trying um different things I mean very few of Stoppard's plays are the as, same as another one and I think that speaks back to what you were telling us earlier of how you are um reusing characters but it sounds like based on your definition of plot you kind of want to explore other facets of those characters' lives or days or feelings or personalities. Um, we haven't really talked to any playwrights who do that. What has that process been like for you? Well, let me give you an example. Um, so one of my um, full-length plays is called Manipulative, and um, the mother of the main character is quite an interesting um person but she didn't get a very large role in that play and it was very sort of one note she was very much playing the protective mother but I thought oh Maureen's actually more interesting than that so why don't I just um, write a short play where she's in totally different circumstances where she isn't so much in control so I wrote a short play called um, The Top Seed and the Poor Seedlings about tennis so the prompt was to write a play about tennis and that's pretty challenging for a start to me it's quite satisfying to know that the same person in different circumstances will react in different ways 
So well, that's what that, I mean by re, re, reusing characters. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And my gosh, that sounds like something ETC would produce, a, a night of short plays following these characters. And I, and, and I think you're the first per playwright we've interviewed. I, correct me if I'm wrong, Christy, who's, who spoke about this or done something like this. And I think it's a fascinating exercise because in each one of these uh, situations, Maureen has been a protector, but sometimes she's just been the supporting character. Sometimes she's been the villain. Sometimes she's been the hero. And what a beautiful way to kind of show the breadth of humanity and the wholeness of a person. And I think that's also any of our playwrights listening. What an amazing writing exercise is to take someone, you know, and keep further developing them and, you can be a protector in life. And sometimes being the protector, you'll be the good guy. And sometimes mm. you'll be the bad guy. And yeah. sometimes you won't be the main character. And I just, that's really brilliant. And and did you just, that came out of self-propulsion for yourself? Like you felt like these characters. You see a different kind, different, um, different side of the character. We all do have different sides. I don't think any of us are as simple as we sometimes, you know, imagine other people are. Oh, that's so true. We're <laughs> yes. I think that was uh, that was perfectly said. That we like to imagine we're the complex ones or the misunderstood ones, versus realizing there's a a lot more, or there's many more layers to someone than what can be on the surface and what we initially understand. One of the things that's exposed that to me is honestly parenting. <laughs> um, you know, not just addressing the behavior of someone, but that there's a heart issue underneath behavior. And um, do, you, do you have the compassion and the patience to discover what that heart issue is instead of just reacting? Uh, certainly that is something that's trickling over into my social life as well, where I find myself being a little bit more graceful to other people, a little more patient with other people, realizing we are complex beings that need grace and patience and abundance with each other i think um i think that would go a long way i mean that was in right the mom and the papa even with non-human being beings right she's not just mother earth crunchy stoner she gets protective of her her people and the papa is not this completely omniscient being outside of ego and patriarchy so it, it seems like this is totally a recurring theme in your work that um, is really lovely and really brings out the humanity, which is something that Christy and I are always looking for in pieces, for sure. Well, that's interesting that, that you just mentioned non-human characters. So another little strand of my work is um, plays about non-human characters. So I've written um, quite a few um, plays with animal characters, some plays with um, plant characters, some plays or with um, inanimate objects. So one of my um, plays that's coming up here in New Zealand very shortly is a production of Ambitious Cutlery. And uh, <laughs> so I, I try to, the other thing people will say, you learn a lot from my plays too. Um, like, uh, so that's one example. Another example of one of my animal plays, which is called The Tarantula's Pet Frog, um, it's set in the in the burrow of a tarantula, and believe it or not, in nature, tarantulas, according to some scientists, do actually keep 
pet frogs, tiny little frogs that are smaller than a tarantula, possibly because they protect the tarantula's eggs and um, possibly because um, the tarantula's fangs are so big they can't actually grasp the frog. But whatever it is, they have like a symbiotic relationship and the, the frog gets protection from the tarantula and the tarantula probably gets protection for her eggs. So that's all in the play. But a lot of people said, you know, how did you come up with that crazy idea? And then I, I showed them a, chip on, a clip on YouTube. There you can actually see the um, tarantula gently stroking the frog's back. So <laughs> I try to be educational and fun. Wow. I know. I'm like, I did not know that. That is wild. Dana, do you have any more questions on your list? I've kind of hit, I mean, just through talking, which is great. Just kind of hit, run down my list of questions, but I didn't want to run over any that you still have. There was just one other um, thing that sounded a little unique to your kind of training process and um, writing that I was curious about. Um, you mentioned, uh, and it's kind of around the idea of resident companies, which um, was really popular in the golden age of theater and like the 40s and 50s. Um, and we've seen reiterations of that in sometimes like, for example, the television show, the FX show, American Horror Story, um, Ryan Murphy was using like a resident company of actors for each season. And I was curious how that um, had influenced your work because you said you've been writing sometimes knowing the same actors um, are doing these readings over and over again. Um, so I want to know how working with the same kind of company of actors and playwrights influenced you. And B, is that that's something that's common in French and European theater. And I know mm. you came up with that. Is that something that's still common in New Zealand today? It's not as common mm. here. No, no, it's not happening in New Zealand at all, as far as I know. We used to have um, a company called the um, Auckland Theatre Company, where they would have um, a set number of actors, and they would do a wide range of um, plays. And often you'd see um, somebody who was in a, really heavy dramatic role would be in a farce the next month, you know. And But that doesn't happen so much now. What happens is um, there's a, a, a um, company that has um, taken on that mantle, but they will cast um, each production using a total, totally different group of actors. And the, the advantages of that is you get, you know, the, the exact actors for the part, but you do lose that sort of um, fun element of um, seeing somebody in different roles. Yeah. I just want to ping something for our listeners. You mentioned the Pages Playwriting Group, which um, we have interviewed on a previous season, Donald Loftus. Oh, he's who, brilliant. Uh, is part of the Pages Group. And I've um, seen yeah. some of those emails come through and stuff. So just throwing that out there uh, to our listeners. It's, it's a big world and a small community. There are other, there's Tiger's Heart Players, there's LA Play Reading Group, there's um, Philadelphia Screenwriters, there are a couple of um, groups in London, there's Moving Parts in Paris. So not these, these ones aren't every week, but um, on a fairly regular basis, I'm contributing scripts there. So Zoom Theatre, a lot of people thought that it might die off, you know, once um, 
live theatre started opening up. But a lot of these groups are continuing and um, actors really enjoy them and they really appreciate this, the um, opportunity to play a wide range of, a wide, far wider range of characters than they would normally be cast for. And write, for writers, it's just brilliant because the one thing writers really need is to hear their words. I mean, it's lovely to see things on stage, but in order to really know whether you've captured the voice and whether something is going to work with pacing, you actually do need to hear it read aloud. Beginning of the interview, we talked about theatre being this live, adaptable, malleable thing, and and you know that's just proof proof in the pudding that even COVID couldn't shut it down. It, it found a way to survive. Um, I've seen your website. I know we have, you have a website. So Gary will be sure to link that in the bio. Um, do you have any social media accounts you like people to follow you on? Yeah, I don't do a lot of social media. I'm on Facebook, but um, most of my, um, well, all of my recent work is on my website, ricksmcgregor.com. I'm particularly interested in this first one. Do you have a word that you might consider a favorite word, a word maybe you're just drawn to, um, maybe you'd like to say it or hear it, but do you, have, do you have a favorite word of sorts? I will say flexibility. That's that a good makes word. sense on, a, on many planes for you. And I've, we've only spoken to you for about an hour, Rex, but I can see why you'd say that. Um, the second question is, do you have a favorite or highly adored, um, perhaps nostalgic setting or location that can be in real life, in one of your plays, um, however you choose to interpret that? I'm going to say New York. Um, before COVID, I was visiting New York every two years mainly to catch up on the shows, but I just love it there. All right, last one. Do you have an item that you would consider a keepsake um, or a totem of sorts, one that is just particularly precious to you? Well, that's interesting. Um, Nothing springs to mind immediately. Let me have a think. One of the reasons is I'm a a minimalist. So um, I don't have a lot of physical objects. However, I can see one right behind me. Can you see that round thing? Yes. That is a globe. So that's my object. The world is my oyster. Thank you so much for joining us, Rex. It's truly been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a... Humanities Tennessee is pleased to announce that the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga and the Lights Up Podcast are grant recipients to the Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan grant program. A program made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, approved by the U.S. Congress and signed into law on March 11. Because of this program, Humanities Tennessee is able to provide $941,454 to 91 organizations throughout the state. The purpose of SHARP grants is to support jobs in the humanities, keep humanities organizations open, and assist the field in its response to and recovery from the needs created or exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. 
these grants may focus on humanities projects or leveraging operational support stemming from the devastating impact of the coronavirus pandemic. They may also help organizations plan for the future and begin the long process of response and recovery to the pandemic. ETC and the Lights Up podcast would like to thank Humanities Tennessee and the National Endowment for the Humanities for this amazing opportunity. Art 120 works between the lines of the formal art process in order to bring art into the community. While Chattanooga is nationally known for public art, a good portion of our local community has little or no access to the creative process. Art 120 gets art off the walls and into our streets, classrooms, and communities through education, curation, and events. Art 120 strives to connect our creative community with other cities within a 120-mile radius of Chattanooga, which encompasses Nashville, Knoxville, Birmingham, and Atlanta, in order to create a network to share events, resources, and programs. The mission of Art 120 is basically all about art. A-R-T. Awareness between the community, artists, educators, and nonprofit organizations, reaching out to the public and underserved schools through free art events in Hamilton County, and teaching opportunities that allow youth to take ownership of their ideas and express themselves without fear. Because everyone should have the opportunity to develop their creativity through arts and cultural experiences regardless of age, ethnicity, gender, or social status. For more information, visit Art120 on the web at www.art120.org. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theater company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the express written consent of the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or a reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ETC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast.